Many U.S. children and adolescents today are exposed to gun violence, either in the form of a single incidence of traumatic violence or as a regular feature of daily life. The American culture of violence and ready access to lethal weapons can also affect young people's development and promote further violent acts. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with James Garbarino, a Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Cornell University and Loyola University, Chicago. Dr. Garbarino has written a perspective article about the effects of gun violence on young people's mental health. Dr. Garbarino, in your perspective article, you highlight two issues related to gun violence and children's mental health, one of which is traumatic responses in those directly exposed to violence. So what are the scenarios in which children in the United States are typically exposed to gun violence? In the country as a whole, there's a small percentage who witness shooting directly as children. Many of these shootings now are part of this phenomenon of school shootings or other mass shootings where children are either the targets or immediate witnesses. And of course, that's a terrible problem and it has all kinds of cultural and social reverberations. But there is a smaller group of kids for whom gun violence is a regular feature of life. And this is a subgroup of American children. And in many ways, the group that certainly I'm most concerned about because the effects of this chronic traumatic gun violence are severe and in many cases profound, and they're tied up in some of our most troublesome social conditions. So starting with that single exposure to a shooting, how does such a thing, say a exposure to a school shooting, typically affect children's development and mental health? Well, the good news is that when these things occur in the context of an otherwise positive, stable, supportive, resource-laden life, there's an immediate crisis, of course, and they may well get some sort of short-term diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder or some other reactive sorts of issue. But the good news is that for the most part, that resolves typically over a year because they get the therapy of reassurance. They're told it's, it's over, it's, you know, things are back to normal, and normal's pretty good. And they also are likely to get more professional intervention, and those who are struggling are more likely to get some sort of trauma-informed psychotherapy. So, but after a year has gone by, you know, typically 80, 90% are back to where they were. And that was certainly true of kids who witnessed the September 11th events in New York City. The study showed that a year later, something on the order of 90% were back to where they were. The 10% typically who don't have some pre-existing issue. One classic study found the kids who were struggling most were kids who, you know, their dog had died before the event, their grandma had died, their father was in the hospital for some reason. So it's really a matter of whether this single incident of gun violence trauma links up with other vulnerabilities, again, when it's a single incident. And then by contrast, how does growing up in an environment where gun violence is the norm alter children's development? Well, when it's chronic, it strips away some of the resources that are used for single incidents. You can't do this sort of therapy of reassurance. You can't tell kids it's okay, things are back to normal, because normal is the problem. It's not like you have an event and it's over. It's part of an ongoing threat. And so you learn adaptive strategies. And I've spoken with kids who were taught, who lived in very violent communities, taught from an early age, get in the bathtub when the shooting starts. Not if the shooting starts, but when the shooting starts. So this chronic trauma can lead to 
a whole set of longer-term consequences, which include issues about self-esteem, dependency, other kinds of issues which themselves then have to be dealt with. This is why I think it's important to always think about not just post-traumatic stress disorder, but post-traumatic stress development. Because certainly in the chronic cases, that is the issue. How do you develop in the wake of ongoing chronic trauma? And when you add in that this is taking place typically in a social environment, which has other factors, which are risk factors for children, it's no wonder that the cumulative effect is often very, very uh, severe and difficult. And it actually is a pathway to future gun violence because you're likely to develop this war zone mentality, which has a high level of hypervigilance. And also that's coupled with a belief in the legitimization of preemptive assault shoot before you're shot. And I, working as a psychological expert witness in murder cases for the last 30 years, a lot of my time is spent with guys who exactly develop that adaptation to chronic trauma. And then they in turn become the next generation of perpetrators of chronic gun violence. That's why the pervasive, deep-rooted cyclical nature of this has proved so intractable in communities around the country. The second issue you talk about in your article is the contamination of the consciousness of young people, particularly those with serious mental health problems. Why are these young people especially vulnerable to media and other portrayals of gun violence? I think the reason stems from something called the audience effect, that teenagers are particularly likely to have this sort of melodramatic sense of the world in which the world is a play, and other people are either the audience, or in some cases the fellow actors in that play. So that's something that's been there for a long time. People have talked about teenagers who get a pimple in the morning and they think, oh, I can't go to school because everyone in school will be watching my face. And so this is a, you know, a longstanding issue. But with social media and the culture of violence in America, it's become particularly lethal because kids who are troubled, particularly boys who are struggled, young men who are struggling, you know, they're looking for a sort of cultural answer to the question, what do you do if you're feeling angry, sad, hurt, rejected? And social media has offered up to them these images of what you do. I've interviewed school shooters, not a large number, but it's very clear, for example, they studied the 1999 Columbine school shooting as if it were a primer, as if it were a textbook on how you respond. And they get cues and clues. And then, of course, the more as social media has become so much more pervasive and sophisticated since 1999, the power of this imagery increases. And psychologically vulnerable kids are particularly prone to this. So are there strategies for intervening before adolescents who may be prone to gun violence can obtain lethal weapons to carry out a violent plan? Well, of course, like the answer to many questions, that depends. It depends on what society's willingness to keep kids safe by denying them access to lethal weapons. And our track record on that is abysmal compared with most countries. So there's a social, political, structural context here that just guarantees that young, angry males will kill lots of people. So failing to prevent access to weapons, our best strategy seems to be more careful, insightful assessment of where these kids are. There are growing a body of work about the possibility of identifying kids who are at risk through multiple uh, psychological screening instruments, 
algorithms that use those screening instruments to predict those kids who are at highest risk. And so it's not totally opaque, but having the cultural and political wherewithal to first to do those assessments and then to translate them into therapeutic intervention and then to have a kind of fail-safe option where if we don't succeed, at least we know they're not going to be able to be armed with powerful weapons. So there is a strategy out there. Uh, some communities are making more progress than others, but clearly by looking at the news, we aren't making a lot of collective progress on this. Finally, looking at the political angle, do you think that there are federal or state policies that could address both aspects of gun violence that you outlined, both alleviating harm to children and supporting their mental health? Clearly, disarmament, in a sense, would be the overarching strategy that there was some number of years ago, the Boston Gun Project focused on taking guns out of the hands of gang members, and they achieved a significant reduction in youth homicide. When you look at countries where guns are not so available, troubled kids still act out. They may, in some extreme situations, find a way to get access, but at nothing like the rate that we have here. There's research in what's called the culture of honor, in which people develop this cultural sense that if your honor is violated, you have to respond with violence. There are countries that have that culture of violence, but kids don't access guns, and so it doesn't translate into a lot of dead bodies. It's hard to have a drive-by stabbing. It's hard to have a mass beating death. So getting guns out of the equation is certainly one of the things that could neutralize many of these cultural and social and psychological issues. But I see no prospect of us doing that in a significant way, given the political impediment. At this point, I would say the comedian Bill Maher on his program has what he calls new rules. There ought to be a new rule that if you think people in general, particularly young males, should have access to semi-automatic weapons, then you are prohibited from being shocked and outraged when mass murders occur using them. I mean, it's that brutal at this point. Thank you, Dr. Gavarino.